Good morning. Our scripture today comes from Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 through 45. This is Jesus speaking. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person, out of his good treasure, brings forth good, and the evil person, out of his evil treasure, brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you'll be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. And so also will it be with this evil generation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There are many, a multitude to be honest, many things of which I am not. Uh, I am not coordinated whatsoever, and that was aptly displayed at our men's retreat as we were playing a game of football. I am uh, I'm not tech-savvy whatsoever. Justin mocks me for this. Uh, Adam wired up a second monitor for the computer, for the laptop that we have in the office. I unplugged it, and I used it as a, something to put my post-it notes on. <laughs> Adam mocks me as well. Uh, there's something that's debatable, though. I think I'm rather organized. Uh, people around me uh, beg to differ quite a bit as well. But there's one thing I can stand before you and tell you that with absolute certainty that I am not. And that is a botanist. I, have, I know nothing about plants whatsoever. My brother, on the other hand, he can look at a piece of bark and he can tell you what kind of tree it's from or just a little bit of the leaf, not even the whole leaf, just a little bit of the leaf. And he can tell you if it's an ash or a maple or anything like that. But even I, in my elementary understanding of plants, 
and trees could tell you that the tree on the east end of the farmhouse across the street where I was growing up, it was an apple tree. I didn't know the Latin terminology. I knew nothing about the bark, but that it was brown and that the leaves were green and that they would too would turn brown and fall in the autumn. But how did I know it was an apple tree? With absolute certainty. They gave you apples. Every year, wonderful, glorious apples. So we'll see in our text today this same parallel. That the fruit of your life, the words coming out of your heart, are a mirror to your soul. And because of that, we're going to see our, our main idea that we're going to be working under here is that you stand condemned before God. You stand condemned before God. So don't demand another sign of Him, but rather trust in Him. You stand condemned before God, so do not demand another sign of God, but rather place your trust in Him. First part that we're going to be looking at here, not surprisingly, three points in the sermon today. Verses 33 through 37, we're going to be looking at the mirror of your soul. How these words coming out of your mouth are an accurate reflection of what is going on inside of your heart. The next section down, we're going to be looking at verses 38 through 42. And you're going to see on the Pharisees, much like us, and that they begin playing the shell game and shifting guilt. And, and rather than seeing their guilt before God, they demand yet another sign of Him. And then finally, we're going to be looking at these last couple of verses, verses 43 through 45, and this uh, admittedly kind of confusing text about unclean spirits and waterless places and houses that are somehow clean now and how that makes us even more evil. But we're going to be looking at that, that at the end here. So main idea that we're working under is that you, I, we stand condemned before God. So rather than seeking another sign and demanding that of God, just place your trust in Him. Can recap where we've been going here. Now, as, you, as you're reading Scripture, and especially narrative, it's important that you place yourself under the text, in an act of humility that you place yourself under the text. And one of the best ways of doing that is by understanding the context of what's been going on. So we see here in Matthew, from the opening movements of this book, that Jesus Christ is portrayed by Matthew as someone who has authority. He's coming forth, and he has authority. But what is the realm of his authority? We have realms of authority in our own lives. It might be or children, or a job that you have where you have authority of other people, or maybe within the home as well. But what about Jesus? What was his authority? It was a kingdom. And not just some lowly earthly kingdom that rises and falls within a matter of a couple hundred years. No, no, no. It was the kingdom of heaven. And he was no, in this kingdom of heaven, he was no sheriff or magistrate or elected official. No, no, no. He was the king the king of all kings and the kingdom of heaven, from the line of David, Matthew is portraying him. And you see him going forth, and he's like a general leading the charge as this kingdom of light is invading the kingdom of darkness. And the line is advancing miracle by miracle and healing by healing. You see the kingdom of light going forth, a teaching on the Sermon on the Mount that's changing people's hearts. And you see the kingdom of heaven advancing soul 
my soul. And you have to give a response to this. You cannot be indifferent to this. And what we've seen from the Pharisees is that their hearts are resistant to the work of the Messiah. They resist Him with their words. Now we're going to be seeing Christ's words back to them. With that in mind, let's look at this first section here. Verses 33 through 37. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and the fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and an evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Thank you. Let us pray. Before we go any further, Heavenly Father, we um, are so careless with our words, so fickle with our hearts, but we come to you, the one who has given us the living word, and we ask that you would transform our hearts. God, it is you and you alone that can transform the hearts of men and women. And you've, you've done it in ages past, and you will do it in the future, God. We ask that you will do it to us. Right now, right at this moment, God, could you convict us of our sins and let us see your glory, that we would come to you and drink of your grace. Amen. Now, think about this. How did the Pharisees reveal what they were thinking? It wasn't their bad body language. No, it was their words. It was their words. And you, and you remember what their words were. Go back to Kevin's sermon from last week. There was Christ that healed a man who was not only deaf, but he was blind. Um, or no, he was mute. And he was demon-possessed on top of that. And their response, the Pharisees' response was, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. And we see in verse 34 here of our text that they are evil. Make no doubt about it. They are evil. And because of the wickedness within their hearts, they are only able to speak that which is evil. An apple tree gives forth apples. A mango tree gives forth mangoes. A peach tree will give you peaches. For, verse 34 at the end, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And you may be able to suppress it for a little while. Sure. Behaviorism, yeah, you can try it for a little while, but your heart will rise up again, and it will come out in your words and how you speak. For the mouth, it's this flowing stream of water coming out of your heart, either to the glory of God or to your shame. You look at David, he was being pursued by Saul, and he cuts off a corner of his garment, and Saul goes out, and, and David repents before him. But David says quite, point, quite pointedly to him, out of the wicked comes wickedness, referring to Saul. He can do no other. Because his heart is wicked, he can do no other. 
but my hand shall not be against you, David says. And the prophet Isaiah, he also writes in Isaiah 32, For the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity, to practice ungodliness and to utter error concerning the Lord. But lest you think that's not, that's just for the ungodly and doesn't apply to Christians, this is what James writes. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord the Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. It's us as well. It's you as well. So, how is someone's marriage doing? Listen to the husband. Listen to the wife. How do they speak to their wife? How do they speak about their wife? The words are perfect mirror to their soul and what's going on in their hearts. What is the ambition of someone's life? Well, eat a meal with them. Have them talk. Very quickly, you'll know where their heart is and what their ambition is. Either your treasure of your heart is good by the grace of God, and out of that good will come, or the treasure of your heart is evil, and out of your mouth will come evil. And this is evidenced by the way you speak. So we've looked at this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees, but we're you're certainly not Jesus, nor are we Pharisees by the technical sense. We have the same heart oftentimes. So the question is, why do you care, right? What does it have to do with me? And with that, let's look at this last sentence. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. There is no middle ground. Either by your words you will be justified, or by your words you will be condemned. Either by your words you will be justified, as Paul writes. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Not only justified, but you can be condemned as well. How do you speak of God? How do you speak of his people. Your words, remember, your words, they actually say much more than about you than they say about God. God has the Bible to reflect him. You have your words to reflect what's going on in your heart. So the Pharisees, they condemned Christ, and they spoke ill of his work, and they were jealous because they... They liked the work of God, sure, but they didn't like the work of God when it wasn't happening through them. But we are no different, my friends. Are we beyond that pride? Are we beyond that vanity? We see someone on the street, and well, God surely can save them. Thinking that somehow we were in a better position than they were. And even if God did save them, I wouldn't want them to come to our precious little church. We're safe here. 
Maybe you see someone teach like Connor or Craig for Sunday school and you can't hear their lesson because all you're thinking is, I'd like to be the guy up front. I want to be that. Or you speak ill of God's creative work and creating men and women of different races that glorify Him. Apart from Christ, my friends, apart from Christ, your words will condemn you. You are in the, as we see in Colossians 1, you're in the domain of darkness. Listen to your words. Not only what you say, sometimes your words are laced with anger and bitterness. Not only what you say, but friends, if you're apart from Christ, listening to what you're not saying. The very breath that God gives you, you refuse to glorify Him. You refuse to praise Him with the life that He has given you. And with that, your words are condemning you. Because your heart, as Jesus says, your heart is evil. On that happy note, we've seen, we've seen how our words can condemn us, how they're an accurate reflection for the glory of God to the glory of God are either to our shame. We see how our words can condemn us. Now as we transition to this next section of verses 38 through 42, we're going to be seeing how we try to shift the guilt. Not only the Pharisees, but we do as well. So let's go back to the text here. Verses 38 down to 42. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment of this, with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear this wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Do you see what's happening here with the Pharisees and, and their request of Christ? They are unable to answer Christ. Both logically and in terms of morality, they are unable to answer Christ. So what do they do? They fall back to their old tactic of just demanding more evidence. But God has certainly given them enough, has he not? But their eyes are blind, and they cannot see it. Don't, so don't lose sight of what, what's already happened in these first several, these first dozen chapters. Christ is born. Kings from the Orient come from the East and pay homage to him. He goes through the temptation of 40 days, 40 nights, fasting. He's tempted by Satan, but he does not give in. Where Israel was unfaithful, Christ is faithful. He goes up in the mountain and gives a teaching on the law that has never been replicated. We're still mining the beauty of it. Centuries and centuries and millennia later. 
And he comes down from the mountain. He heals a leper. He heals a centurion's servant. One of his disciples' mother-in-law, He what does he do? He heals her as well. That's pretty good evidence, but it doesn't end there. He cast out demons. He calmed some storms as they're on the ship. And even one of their own, Jairus, the synagogue official from Capernaum, he raises her daughter from the dead. And on his way to the house, he heals a woman who's been hemorrhaging blood for a dozen years. And then what do they do? Give us a sign. Give us a sign. Give us a sign. And even in their midst, this is, this is the, the beauty of it all. Even in their midst, he heals someone. And it was like this, this perfect storm of them being blind and mute and demon-possessed. Like, what more could you ask for, really? And what do they say? Give us a sign. Give us a sign. Give us a sign. But why is that not enough evidence for them? Why is it not enough? Maybe another way to ask that, we could ask, where have we seen this before? This is not new to the Pharisees. Go back to Genesis. Go back to the garden. You see, Adam and Eve, they have the abundance of God and his creative good right before them. They cannot see it. And they're deceived by Satan and they eat of the fruit. Centuries and centuries later, God's people are in Egypt. And there's Pharaoh. And sign after sign is given to Pharaoh, but he cannot see it. The river, the Nile River, is turned to blood. They have frogs, they have gnats, they have flies. They have cattle that are sick. They have boils that go on everybody. They have hail that comes down and kills everybody in the field. Then they have locusts who come and eat everything that the hail hasn't killed. And then they have darkness, a long three days. Let the reader understand. Three days of darkness. And then the killing of the firstborn son. And can he see it? No. His eyes are blind. Fast forward again. Several centuries. People of God are living in the promised land before the exile. And prophet after prophet after prophet has come to them, as Justin and Curtis taught recently in Sunday school. Come to them, begging them to repent, showing them signs and wonders. Walk around with Elijah and Elisha. What more evidence do you need to repent? But they cannot do it. They cannot see the work of God that is right before them. They refuse to believe. And now in our text, we see these Pharisees. And the evidence is right before them, and they're no different than Adam and Eve, than Pharaoh, than those who are unrepentant, right before the exile. It's right before them, but they are unable to see it. And ironically, there was one who was deaf and mute and demon-possessed that Kevin preached on last week, and that's our context that we're working from. But it's actually the Pharisees who are the ones that are deaf. They're the ones that couldn't hear the work of God. They're the ones who are mute. They can't sing the praises of God. They're the ones whose hearts are demon-possessed, speaking the evils of Christ rather than seeing it in their own hearts. They demand a sign and they refuse to see what is evident before them. Yet Christ in his mercy, will give them a sign, a great sign. Read in verse 40. 
For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus will give them a sign in his mercy, the greatest of all signs, that he will die on the cross, but the Father will rise and raise him again. Yes, as we know, these Pharisees continue in their unbelief. And this is why, as we see in these, as you go down a couple of verses, this is why the men of Nineveh will rise up in condemnation of that gener generation. That is why the Queen of Sheba, the Queen of the South, will rise up in condemnation of that generation. Those who are in Nineveh, they saw their sin when Jonah was preaching. The Queen of Sheba, she sought a greater wisdom that she knew she couldn't find outside of the providence of God. It was the very thing, that conviction of sin and seeking of wisdom that was lacking in their generation. And I would contend to you that it's the very thing lacking in our generations as well. We've seen in our previous section that the words coming out of our mouths reveal that our hearts, apart from Christ, are wicked. Utterly wicked. But rather than coming to Christ and repenting of Him, what do we do? We demand more signs. We ask for more evidence. The hallowed halls of universities are filled with atheists. I don't really believe in atheists, but they call themselves atheists. So what are they doing? They're demanding more signs. They don't want to deal with a, resurre a resurrected Lord. They don't want to deal with the sin of their own hearts. So what do they do? Show us more evidence. Show us more evidence. Show us more evidence. They refuse to submit. And because of that, they call themselves atheists. But that's not only true in the hallowed halls of universities. It's also true in the hallowed halls of our homes. Christians, won't you trust God? How much more evidence do you need? How often is He calling you to trust in Him through the storms of your life? For He's calling you to missions, but you're holding back. Just want a little more sign, a little more evidence. Or is He calling you to be more active in this church and just kind of holding back, saying, no, 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 I'll, I'll wait for a little more sign. No, no, trust in Him. He's calling you to forgive your brother, but you're, you're holding back because you want to make sure that He actually is going to forgive you as well. And Because if He doesn't forgive you, then you're going to be vulnerable. And I mean, what Christ-like attribute is there being vulnerable, right? So you're going, to, you're going to hold back a little bit more, a little bit more, until God gives you another sign, yet another sign. He's calling you to trust Him as a family. There's, there's storms in your life. He's calling you as a family to trust Him. So listen, listen to this. Don't hold back and demand another sign. Do not hold back and demand another sign, but trust in Christ. He's given you all that you need. He's given you the resurrection of His Son from the dead. What more do you want? You have the evidence right before you. 
So we see this as we, we're going to move forward. We, we see that our, we, we are wretched sinners apart from Christ. And you see that in your words and in the way you speak. And if you don't see it in the word, way that you speak, it's even more concerned because your eyes are blind as well. So you see it in the way you speak. So don't, don't demand of Christ yet another sign, yet another sign. He's given you the sign, and that is his son who's come and risen from the dead. And now, looking forward, we're going to see the folly of trying to clean up this house all by yourself. When you see this predicament that you're in. So with that, let's go ahead and, and turn to our verses 43 through 45. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter the house, they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Um, admittedly, this is a, a pretty interesting uh, little parable, these several verses here, these three verses, and it seemingly comes out of nowhere, like the, like it's the book of Proverbs, and you'll have a, a, like a proverb about loving your wife and disciplining your children, and then, you know, being fair in the marketplace and not having un, un, undue, unjust weights in the marketplace. So it, this seems, on the, on the first hand, to kind of come out of nowhere. But when we read narrative, friends, when you read narrative, it's not as the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John just scattered these stories like papers on the floor and kind of shuffled them together and same how it came out, and, you know, birth in the front, death in the back, and that's good. No, they're, they're deliberately here. He couldn't place this anywhere, but he put it here, and choice implies a reason behind it. He could have left it up, but he put it in here. He put it here for a reason, and when we look at it, it, it kind of makes a little bit more sense here. The Pharisees, they heard the word of God and remained unconverted. But they didn't have unclean spirits in the sense that they were not overtly practicing idolatry, which is the great unclean spirit of the, in the past for, the people of, for God's people. But one aspect, they had, they expelled that from their homes, this unclean spirit of idolatry, of bowing down. And they, they took care of that, and they tidied up their homes, and, well, you know, they look pretty good. They're paying alms to the poor as long as people could see it, and they were out praying wonderfully and eloquently on the, on the streets. And they look good. And you see in verse 44, their houses were empty and swept and put in order. But that pride of cleaning your own house, apart from the transformative work of Christ, will lead to ruin and destruction. In fact, the end result is that you're going to be much worse off than when you began. For the end result of pride is always destruction. So when you see the sin in your life and you go, oh, i got to take care of it, i got to take care of it. No, 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 no. Don't clean your house. Let God clean your house. It's in His Son that we are righteous. It's not in your actions. So turn to Christ. Don't put your own house in order. Why? Because you're going to be full of pride and your fall is going to be great. You see it all the time. 
it's often, how many seminary professors do I know? How many pastors do we know? Fallen. And they appeared to have it put together. Their house was in order. It was neat and tidy. But it was all of themselves. It wasn't their transformative work in Christ. And that fall is great. And that fall is mighty. And in fact, you're going to be far worse off than if you just carry on in your sin. You might as well be humble in your sin than be prideful in your sin. Turn to Christ. So friends, you, you see how this whole text flows throughout. It's not just a random collection of sayings. These Pharisees, they see the work of God and they refuse to submit. And they, they're, they're mocking Christ, saying, oh, it's, it's by Beelzebub that he cast out demons. No, no, no. It is Christ whom they should have been submitting to, but their words revealed the wickedness within their hearts. Your words, my words, reveal the wickedness within our hearts apart from Christ. So don't demand another sign when you see that, friends. Especially in this town. Science, science, science. Our economy is driven by science. Prove there's a God. Well, he's proven himself. Don't demand another sign. His son being raised from the dead is sign enough. If you demand more evidence, raise yourself from the dead. But no, he has given us that evidence in his son. So don't demand another sign. But repent of your sins. And don't try to do it of yourselves. Don't put your own house back in order. But turn to Christ, my friends. And in his righteousness may you be found and justified. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we, we have nothing apart from you, God. So we ask that you would make us alive in your Son. God, convict us of our sins throughout this week. And I pray that we would turn to you, God, that we would not demand more evidence, but that we would see the clear evidence before us, and that we would not be like the former generations who did not repent God, that we would be like your people of old that have come and had faith in your Son and have seen him and see your Son high and lifted up and exalted, God. I pray that you would make that true of our hearts as well. Amen.